Good morning. There are a number of absolutely beautiful, powerful, and awe-inspiring prayers in the Bible. I want you to think about that. There are prayers that are uttered in the Bible that offer us the utmost in humility. Prayers offered in deep humility. There are prayers in the Bible that are offered in the deepest and most horrible of afflictions. There are prayers in the Bible that are offered on behalf of and to benefit others. And as I begin this morning and kind of get you thinking about prayers in the Bible, you might consider, based on some of those descriptions, perhaps the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Maybe when I started talking, the prayer of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 came to mind. Maybe the prayer, the psalm, but the prayer of David in Psalm 51 after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and been discovered where he prayed to God to give him a clean heart and restore to him the joy of his salvation. Perhaps your mind, instead of going to the Old Testament, went to the New Testament. I mean, obviously, some of the most beautiful, humble prayers, some of the most horrible of afflictions and prayers in response to that and on behalf of others occurred from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe the first thought that came to your mind is what we often call the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, I don't know why we call that the Lord's Prayer. Every prayer Jesus uttered is the Lord's Prayer, but nonetheless, we refer to it as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And you'll recall that's in verses 5 through 13, and that's where Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray. And it's the prayer that we're very familiar with about giving us this day our daily bread and forgiving others, and it's a beautiful prayer. Maybe you thought of the prayer in John chapter 17. We're studying John 16 in the adult class. Maybe you considered John 17, that beautiful prayer of Jesus just before he was crucified, as, as we just talked about. Well, actually, before he was arrested and, and beaten and crucified. But you recall the prayer, the prayer where Jesus prayed for his disciples then, where they would be sanctified in the truth. Jesus went on to pray for his disciples, you and I, future disciples, that we would believe in him through his then apostles' word. Certainly one of the most, if not the most, of agonizing situations, certainly it was, in the entire Bible, wherein we find prayer is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, wherein he cried three times, Father, be your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, because that night he knew that for you and for me, he had to do that. And you know, there's a prayer of Jesus we often overlook, and I think one of the reasons we overlook it is because it's one of the shortest prayers in the Bible, but short doesn't mean powerless. In fact, it's one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned personally. It's a matter of, of, of your own thoughts on that, but the prayer in Luke 23 and verse 34 where Jesus prayed, Father, please forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so there's a number of those, but I want to look at a, a different prayer this morning partly due to the broader context in which it is contained, I would like for us to focus in this morning on Paul's prayer, specifically Paul's prayer for strengthening that we see in Ephesians chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there, that would be awesome. You know, it is an infinitely powerful context and infinitely powerful contents that we find in this prayer of Paul. Now, we're going to take a look in Ephesians chapter 3, but we're going to spend some time before we actually get into the meat of the prayer. You'll notice in Ephesians 3 and verse 1, Paul says, he says, 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. <laughs> then Paul digresses all the way to verse 14. <laughs> you notice in verse 14, he says, for this reason. See, he started in verse 1. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he goes off on a tangent. I love Paul. <laughs> he goes off on a tangent all the way till he gets back to his for this reason statement in verse 14 where he begins that prayer. By the way, I know sometimes when I write bulletin articles and stuff, I use long sentences. Um, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in chapter three, verses one through 13 uses a grand total of three sentences. Just saying. Before we get to that prayer for his brethren in Ephesians chapter three beginning at verse 14, I want for us to explore and focus in on a little bit of the context of that prayer, a little bit of the setting in which that prayer is placed. Because this prayer only further illustrates what Paul's already said in the epistle. It, it further illuminates what Paul has already said in this epistle. So in order to fully get a grip on, on what he's saying in the prayer, we need to consider what he's written about in the epistle. So let us go back to Ephesians chapter, chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we have this list of infinitely powerful, incredible, beyond our ability to comprehend promises and blessings that we in Christ Enjoy. Let's just read a few of them. We'll begin in verse 3 of chapter 1 where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> as far as the vast expanse, because I can't get my mind around an infinite place where God dwells in every blessing that's listed there. I can't, and if you can figure that out, you can talk to me later, but I cannot get my mind around all that is contained in that one verse. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation world, before God ever created this world, he had a plan because he knew what his creation was going to do. They were going to fall. And so he chose us who were in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. As I read that this morning and I celebrate and I think, I stand holy and without blame before God. You know what you've done in your life just as I know what I've done. I know how I've disappointed God. You know how you've disappointed God. We all know our own selves and our own sin. But to think that this morning that I stand holy and blameless before him, because in love he predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. God had this incredible plan to make me holy and sinless in his sight before I was ever born, before the world was created, before I sinned that first time. And this was all according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted. He made us accepted. We can stand before a holy God because he made us accepted in his beloved son. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. We're not, it's not that we're going to have redemption. It's not that we might have redemption. Redemption here is not seen as a future thing. Redemption is something we have this morning, June the 27th, 2021 at 1117. We have redemption in Christ. We have forgiveness in Christ. Just, just, Ephesians is just boiling over with this. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace, not because we're good, but because he's God. And so this is the beginning of this setting in which we will find that prayer eventually. In fact, so incredible are the blessings that Paul has listed here that Paul says, right in chapter one, did you know there's a couple of prayers in Ephesians or a couple of mentions of prayers in Ephesians? Not just one, not just the one in, in chapter three. But so incredible and so infinite and so all-encompassing are these blessings that we have in Christ that Paul says 
right here in chapter 1, that he continually prays for these people who are in Christ. They're already Christians like you and me. They've been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They're Christians. But he says he prays for them all the time that they might somehow get just a glimpse of understanding into everything they've got in Christ. Is it possible to be a Christian for years and not understand the fullness of what you got in Christ? Oh, yeah. And that was them. In fact, Paul said, I pray for you continually. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, <clears throat> chapter 1, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Okay, Paul, you mention them. What are you asking for? For? Here's what he asked for, as he continually mentions them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you, remember he's talking to Christians, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He said, I want you Christians to get some small idea. I pray that God will give you wisdom to understand all you got. That the eyes, he says, I pray, Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He said, I want, I want God to open your eyes to understand the blessings you've got. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. He said, I want you to know every day. I want you to, I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. I want you to know what you got in Christ. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Brethren, you could spend a hundred lifetimes studying what you've got in Christ and not scratch the surface. Our God is so awesome, we cannot get our minds, and, and Paul is saying, that's why I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you, you, will, you will get some, whatever you can, some glimpse, you'll understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? God doesn't just have power. God doesn't just have power. God has incredible, exceeding, infinite greatness of his power. And Paul says, I want you Christians in Ephesus to understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He said, that's the power I'm talking about. And I want you to understand what it means that God has that power for you. And when I read that, one of the things I see, one of the things I celebrate as we, as we take communion Christ resurrected from the dead, right? Right? You know what that means? That means I can be too. He proved it can be done. I can only do it through him. He can only do it for me. It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. But he says, I want you to understand that power toward us who believe, verse 19, that same mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him with right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in that which is to come, there is no power on earth that rivals Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we have an eternal inheritance. Wow. In Ephesians, incredible. He goes on in chapter, he's just getting started. He goes on in chapter 2, and he reminds us all how you know, it wasn't always this way. There was a time when you Gentiles, you, you were without hope and without Christ in the world. You know, he goes on to say in chapter 2, you were destined for destruction and you were powerless to change your direction. As I said in the adult class this morning, until we understand how lost we were in sin, we're never going to fully appreciate the grace of God. But he says in chapter 2, but now you have been absolutely unspeakably blessed and have been brought near to God and made a part of his family. You've been made a part of his family, his adopted children, by the incomparable blood of Christ. That's chapter two. In the process, Paul tells us how he was entrusted with the unsearchable riches of God because God always carries out his plan, his purpose. And we see that as we read on into chapter three, verses one through 12, we see that Paul said, I was entrusted with this message, and God has made known this whole plan through the existence of the church. And God kept all of his Old Testament promises. God kept every promise that he had ever made. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. You know, this idea of God keeping all of his promises, this truth, this fact, 
that God always keeps his promises, always, always, and you can count on them. Reminds me of a couple of things that a couple of great men in the Old Testament said, Joshua and Solomon. You know what they said? They repeatedly told us not one word of God has ever failed to come to pass. Not one word. Check this out with me, because Paul is saying the same thing here about, about this, again in chapter 3, about this, this church and, and the fellowship of this mystery, and from the beginning of the ages, God had this plan, and, and he made it known through the church, and, and this eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ. God always keeps his promises. Joshua 21, turn there with me for a minute. We'll come right back to Ephesians, but I want you to, I want you to check this out. Joshua chapter 21, God's always been this way. God doesn't change. Joshua chapter 21, in Joshua's day, look what he said, verse 42 and following, Joshua 21, verse 42 and following, and we'll start in 43, yeah, let's start in 43, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. Not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Look in chapter 23 of Joshua at verse 14. Joshua chapter 23 and verse 14. Joshua is getting ready to die. He said, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed, ever. King Solomon said the same thing when he was praying at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Verses 20 through 24 and 54 through 58 mentions it twice. God keeps his word. And, and Paul, as he's gone through Ephesians 1, talks about the redemption we have in Christ. As he goes through chapter 2 and says, hey, you Gentiles are once without hope and without God in the world, but now he's brought you close. Then he goes into chapter 3 and says, hey, this was eternal. God had this in mind from the beginning. This is exactly what God said was going to happen. You see, Paul said the same thing that Joshua said. Paul said the same thing Solomon said. God keeps his promises. Always. Always. And, and the reason I take you to that before we, we talk about this prayer is because this absolute and supreme confidence in the God who keeps his promises is displayed in every sentiment that Paul puts forward in the book of Ephesians, including that prayer. He's completely confident that God will keep every word because God always has of everything he said. Let me show you one example of how this is reflected. Look with me again in, in Ephesians 3 and verse 1. This idea, this fact, this truth that Paul trusted God's providence completely because God can be trusted completely is seen in chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, here we go, the prisoner of Nero. Oh, well, I'm sorry. The prisoner of the Roman, oh, no, sorry. See, that's my point. Paul understood who he was a prisoner for. He understood who had the power over where he was. It wasn't Nero. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. I'm a prisoner of Jesus, he said, because he knew if Jesus wanted him out of there, he wouldn't be there. Total confidence in the providence of God. We see this so many times with Paul. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1, Ephesians 4.1. He says it again. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. You want to talk about confidence? Paul says, I mean, what are most people that were, were in prison waiting for their, you know, their sentence? I mean, they ain't talking like that. Paul says, God 
had this plan. We are in Christ, we're saved, chapter one. We didn't used to be, we used to be, out, or, or the Gentiles didn't used to be, they used to be outside of Christ, that's chapter two. Chapter three, but God had this plan in mind from the very beginning and, and he's made me a steward of, of that mystery kept hidden before the ages. God's kept every word and sprinkled in with that in, in chapter three, verse one, and chapter four, verse one, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He said, in other words, I trust God's providence. Why wouldn't I? And you know, Paul continually did that. For example, turn to me to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at me in verses 7 through 11. You want to talk about trusting God's providence? You want to talk about a man who's who could have lamented his circumstances in this terrible place that he was in and, and wrongly imprisoned, as it were, if you will. But that, that, isn't, that isn't Paul's focus. Paul's focus is, hey, I trust God, even here. God can be trusted. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Notice again, it's Christ's prisoner, not Nero's, not the Romans. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You see it right there? He said, look, my sufferings for the gospel are according to the power of God. If God wanted me somewhere else, he could put me there. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. Paul was completely confident in God's ability to carry out his own purposes. No matter where Paul was, no matter what he was struggling with, no matter where he was going through, he has called us according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, just like Ephesians 1, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I suffer these things. He said, I know why I'm suffering. God's allowing it, and it's okay, because I trust God. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Wow. Brethren, that's where we need to be in our struggles. We all struggle. We struggle with something. But I, I love the way Paul continually said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. God knows where I am. God knows I'm here. And if God wants me out of here, he'll see to it that I get out of here. But while I'm here, I'm gonna trust him. And I'm gonna praise him. You know how often Paul put the, think of this, consider this. In the book of Philemon, Paul repeatedly called himself. First off, I'm not turning there, just a quick note. Philemon, he said, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus in verse one. He said, Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Philemon in verse nine. And then he talks about his chains for the gospel in verse 13. This was the same apostle, by the way, who penned the words in Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul knew that God could bring good even out of that bad situation he was in. Now, I don't believe, personally, for a moment, that Paul, as he's sitting there under house arrest, imprisoned, whatever term you want to put on it, I don't believe as he was sitting there that Paul could look ahead 2,000 years to all the churches on Sunday morning that would be reading from the epistles that he was writing while he was sitting there. I don't believe Paul had that ability. But aren't you glad that he had time to write what he had time to write? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, aren't you glad those are in your Bible? Well, God had to give him time to write those and he had all kinds of time while he was under house arrest, right? He couldn't have known that's why, but he trusted God. 
even there and said, even I know I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now God knew, God knew this morning we were going to be talking about this. God knew every time there was going to be a sermon preached out of those, but Paul didn't. But Paul trusted that God knew and that was enough and he called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Mm. It is this same absolute trust and confidence in the providence of God which Paul is now going to turn to or turn his attention to in this prayer. He's going to let his Ephesian brethren know the same idea that God knows what he's doing. God's got no matter what you face, God, and brethren, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know. I mean, I know you're here, right? But, and I know you're there, but I don't know where you are in your life, a lot of you and what you're struggling with, but I do know this. I'll tell you one thing I know about your struggle. God knows where you are. He knows where you are better than you know where you are. He does, and that's Paul's point. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. It's all about him, it's all about his providence. He knows where I am. Matter of fact, he allows me to be here. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus really, 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 really wanted Paul somewhere else, would Paul have had the power even by himself to stay where he was? God would have got him where he needed him to be. And, that, and that's what Paul's letting him know, is, is God knows, God will get me, if I trust him, he'll take me where I need to be. And, and again, we see this in his prayer reflected again, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. The one again, he begins in chapter three in verse one and digresses until he gets to <laughs> verse 14. Again, he picks up in verse 14, for this reason, the way he started the chapter, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, you, remember who he's writing to. He is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Chapter one in verse one, he's writing to the church. He's writing to those who've been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who are New Testament children of the living God and are faithful in Christ. That's who he's writing to. And he says, I pray and I bow my knees that God, verse 16, would grant you Christians according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened, strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And he didn't stop there. What else he praying for? He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, you Christians, you guys, me, us, as well as the Ephesian brethren, that you, take this personal, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Apparently they weren't, but Paul says, oh, I want you to be so bad. And so I want to break this down and I want to look at that prayer kind of verse by verse here, sort of, for a few minutes. First off, he says in verse 14, I bow my knees like today, you know, men will get up front and lead prayer or we sit around a table and, and we'll say, please bow your heads as a sign of reverence and respect. The Old Testament, one of the Old Testament words for worship means to bow down or blow a kiss toward. So we bow our heads in reverence and respect. And in that day, bowing the knee was for the same reason, to bow down in reverence and respect. And he said, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that when Paul was praying it, you know, sometimes, sometimes maybe, maybe we, we get ready to have a meal and we say this 30 second canned prayer that we've said a hundred times so the food don't get cold or whatever. This ain't what this is talking about. This ain't that kind of prayer. This is not some short, cold, this is a focused, deliberate, fully reverent prayer. I bow my knees. One that approaches the throne of Almighty God with true fear and humility and an understanding of who God really is as he's depicted in places like Revelation 5, Revelation 8, 
It, the bowing, the knees, has to do with this, this incredibly reverent, humble attitude before God. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the day's coming when every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's, it's that kind of reverence. In Paul's prayer, he goes on here in verse 16, and his prayer is that God will strengthen them. Notice this phrase, according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of, how much glory does God have? <laughs> infinite, right? I don't even know why I throw my hands open. I'd have to turn around too because it's, it's, it's infinite, okay? According to the riches of his glory. In other words, Paul is, is praying for these Christians that God would give them an understanding of the access they now have through his infinite, limitless, and all-encompassing glory in all they now have. What do they have? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus as forgiven children of God. He wants them to understand what they now have through his all-encompassing glory. Because if they can understand what they have got through his all-encompassing glory, then that will make them, as he writes elsewhere in the New Testament, more than conquerors in all their trials and afflictions, Romans 8. It will make them more than conquerors against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He wants them to be more than conquerors, but in order for them to be that, they've got to understand what they got. They've got to understand everything that's theirs. And he said, I, I pray, I, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that, that God will strengthen you through his spirit the inner man. And you know, this is not the first time, nor is it the last time that we would note that phrase according to the riches of his glory in scripture. Did you notice it? The first prayer or the first time he mentioned his prayers right there in, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, we see that same phrase again, according to the riches of his glory. In Romans 9 verses 23 through 26, Paul also talks about how God made known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Did you know that's what you and I are? Did you know that's what we are? We are vessels of mercy. What does that mean? It means we are broken vessels on whom God had a plan to shower his mercy and grace. That was that plan before time began. Again, continuing with Romans 9, 23 through 26, that God had made known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. Did you get that? God had prepared us beforehand for glory. All of us who would accept the gospel call, all of us who would accept Christ's offer to be baptized, to become part of his church, to be washed in his blood, to become part of that one kingdom. God prepared all of those, prepared this plan beforehand that we would have glory. Even us, it says in Romans 9, 23 through 26, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call them my beloved who are not my beloved. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. God predestined everybody who would accept his grace for glory. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? You say, what does that mean? I say, I can't tell you the fullness of what it means, but I can tell you I am so blessed and grateful to God for giving it to me. Paul closes his epistle to the Philippian brethren in Philippians 4, 19 and 20 by saying, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's all about the riches of God's glory. Now, what I want for us to understand, what, 
there's part of the riches of his glory that I want us to understand. There's, there's many facets to this, there's many elements of it. But one of the key ones that I want for us to understand and, and that Paul is praying for them here as well, I believe, is this. Part of the riches of his glory, according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What gives us our hope of glory is Christ in us. This is what he's talking about in John chapter 14 in the adult class again a few weeks ago. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is where our strength comes from, brethren. Christ living in our hearts by faith. That's where our strength to overcome comes from. Without that, we don't have the power or the strength to win. Christ is everything. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Look, look at chapter, again, Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit, that is through Christ's spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Do you know how prevalent this is in the New Testament? You know how many different writers put this different way that, that that's where the power is, that's where the strength is, and, and if we have that, we have everything. Again, it's what Jesus was talking about in John 14, verses 15 through 23. The Apostle Paul referred to it also as this treasure that we have in earthen vessels. Turn to me to 2 Corinthians 4 for just a moment. Paul referred to the same thing as this treasure we have in earthen vessels. We are like pieces, like, like clay pots. We are breakable, we are fragile, a lot of us are broken, a lot of us are scarred and marred and chipped. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Again, talking about Christ in us, the Spirit of God strengthening us in our inner selves, in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have, and notice it's not we will have, it's we have, it's current tense. This is something we have, not that we will have. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You see it? Same thing he's writing about in Ephesians. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. Why? Because we have Christ within us. That's the power. It's like a soda can, okay? Some of you are too young to remember this, but that's okay. There used to be this thing. <laughs> you see this commercial on TV. This guy thought he was real tough, could, you know, soda can, you know, pop it on his head and all that and macho because he could, you know, an aluminum soda can, big deal, right? But you know something I never did see? I never did see him take a full can of soda and do that and break it. Think about this. You can take a tin can now that gets soda out of it, right? You can just, or pop, or I'm sorry, for those of you that are used to the word pop, I'll use that, okay? Take a pop can, soda can, and, and it's pretty easy, right? You don't have to be a, an NFL linebacker to crush a can, right? A 10-year-old can do it. But you know something you won't see? You won't see that 10-year-old crush one that's full with a cap still on it, will you? You know why? Now they can dent it, they can put a little dent in it, you know, if I stand up here with a can and show you how weak I am, you know, I could, I could take that can of, of, of Pepsi or Coke or whatever your favorite is, and I might be able to put a dent in it, right? But I'll guarantee you this, I couldn't crush it like I could if it was empty, could you? Remember that, with Christ in us, the power and the might, yes, we can be dented a little, yes, we can, we can suffer pressure, but with Christ in us, that's where the power and the strength and the resistance comes from, so that we are not totally crushed. That's exactly what Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to know. It's exactly what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. Christ in you, that you may be strengthened through the inner man, that you may know what you've got in Christ. The Apostle John talked about the same thing in 1 John 4 and verse 4, where he said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You remember the text. See, Paul realized what he had. 
And Paul relied on that strength of Christ within him constantly. What did he say in Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me the same idea, same thing. But see, he wanted his Ephesian brethren because he knew the trials and the struggles that they were going to have. And, he, and he's praying for them in Ephesians 3. And he says, I, just, I, I want you to know this. I want you to understand what you got. The power that you have of Christ in you. Because he knew if they didn't understand that, they wouldn't access it. Listen, <laughs> you buy a car with some of today's tech, or you buy the latest cell phone, or you buy the latest laptop, right? Is there a possibility that you could get four years down the road and never have discovered everything it would do? Is that possible? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sometimes as Christians, we can become Christians, and we can be Christians a lot, of you and not understand the full blessings that we have. Not understand all the intricacies of the power of Christ in us. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, if you don't know that you got it, then you wouldn't try to access it, right? Because you don't know it's there. I'm still finding out things on my little phone that it's like, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> right? And I've never accessed it before because I didn't realize it would do that. I didn't realize it was there. Well, how many times do Christians not understand the strength that they have in Christ and all that is there for them and the blessings and everything they have that, that even if they're in prison like Paul was, that they have this power, they have this strength. It's there, it's untapped because they don't realize. It's sort of like the, the Wizard of Oz. Remember the Wizard of Oz? Okay, you got Dorothy, you got Straw Man, you got the Tin Man, you got the Lion. And they take this journey to Oz because they're all looking for something. Dorothy's looking for a way home. The scarecrow's looking for a brain. The tin man is looking for a heart. Maybe that's vice versa, it's been a long time. The lion's looking for courage. What do they find out when they get there to the Wizard of Oz? What do they find? I'll tell you what they find. May I paraphrase? I'm gonna. <laughs> paraphrase. Dorothy, those shoes you've had on the whole journey are your ticket home. You've had, it with, had them with you all along. And, and, and you, Scarecrow, you've had, here's, here's a diploma saying you, you got the brain, you've had the brain all along. You formulated plans on the way here. You got it, you just didn't know what you had. And the Tin Man, what, what did he find out? He found out that he'd really had a heart all along. He just didn't know it. And the lion, when he went to rescue Dorothy, he found out that he didn't think he ever had courage, but he'd had it all along. See, and I think Christians sometimes, we're on this journey and we're hoping to get something down our road. Brethren, we got to understand what we've already got. Because if we understand what we've already got in Christ, if we understand the blessings, if we understand the power, if we understand every good thing God has given us, when the going gets rough and the way gets dim as we sing, we're going to rely, we're going to access it because we know it's there. And, and that's what Paul is praying for with these, with these Christians in Ephesus. Look at verse 17, he says in the latter part, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. One of the flowers, and, and I, don't mean to, I don't mean to cause a problem for any of you that like them, but one of the flowers that I grew to dislike a long time ago, because we had them and we were trying to get rid of them and you can't kill them, daylilies. Where we were in Maine with the daylilies, I could dig those things up and get rid of them, and a few weeks later, they're popping up again. I mean, you had to, I had to go down with two shovels and break these things. You had to dig like two feet deep because they were rooted that strong. I wish every Christian was persevered the way daylilies do. <laughs> you can't split them, you can't break them, you can't get rid of them, not, with a, not unless you work really, really, really hard. They're rooted, and Paul says, I want you rooted, I want you grounded, I want you so deep grounded in Christ and everything you got that nothing, nothing will overwhelm you, nothing. I'm reminded of the words of Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. It will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will it cease yielding fruit. Jeremiah said, This plant planted by the river has got these roots that go down so deep, let the heat come. Bring the heat. Doesn't matter. Bring the drought. 
We're not going to have to worry about that this next week. I understand. Bring the drought. Bring it. Because it's rooted. And the fruit's going to keep coming. Brethren, that's what we need to be. Come the heat, come the drought. We need to be so rooted in the love of God, so rooted in Christ, that we just keep producing fruit no matter how hot, no matter how much of a drought there may be in our lives. That's what Paul's praying for these Christians right here in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints all these things. I want you to notice how verses 18 and 19 are worded, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Watch this. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. I want you to know the love of Christ, which you can't possibly hope to know. That's what he says. I want you to know the unknowable. What he's saying is, I want you to experience and understand the love of Christ, which you can never fully understand because it is so big and so vast that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's an irony in that verse. He prays that they will come to understand that which is infinitely beyond their understanding. It would be sort of like trying to, un sort of like trying to explain the internet to an earthworm. Pretty much. There's no way an earthworm can understand how the internet works. I'm not sure I understand it myself. But Paul says, I, I want you to know, I want you to experience, and I'm praying for you that you'll have more wisdom to begin to understand just this incredible, awesome, unknowable, way beyond your limits of comprehension love that God has for you. Brethren, there's more Christians that we need to pray for like that. Do you understand how much God loves you? They didn't. When we think of the width and length of his love, think of the words of Psalm 103.12, where it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Can't even define that width and length. When we talk about the depth and the height, I think of Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11, where even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. I can't get my mind around the depth and height of God's love. As I consider the width and length and depth and height of God's love for you and for me and for all of us and for all of them, I am reminded there is no length, there is no height, there is no depth, there is no width, there is no calamity, there is no circumstance, there is no tragedy, there is no disappointment, there is no power not even life and death itself that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 28, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Isn't God's love for you something else? That is what we all so desperately need to know in our daily struggles so that we don't fall back into hopelessness like Ephesians 2. That is what we all need to desperately know this morning to take away from this place, to take away from this text, to take away from this epistle, to take away from this prayer in order that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't you need that in your life? Don't you like that soda can that can be so beat up when it gets empty? Don't you need to be filled with all the fullness of God so you can't be crushed? Understand how much God loves you. Understand what you have in Christ. We are filled with the fullness of God when Christ comes to dwell in our hearts through faith, verse 17. That's a process that begins to truly take place when we repent and are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. God adds us to his church, which is his body. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. Listen, it is only in Christ and in his body, his church, Ephesians 1 through 4, and we find this incredible, infinite, all-powerful fullness known to us. Listen, the church in Ephesus needed desperately to know this. The church in Ephesus was about to get absolutely bulldozed. Within a few years of Paul's writing this to the church in Ephesus, Paul was going to be put to death by Nero. 
A couple of decades later, one of their great leaders, the Apostle John, was going to be imprisoned on the island of Patmos because he spoke the word of God. The church there was going to be in great turmoil. And I don't know that John was necessarily the only one from that congregation, but when we think about the Neronian persecution and how they arrested and killed Christians, and when we think about up through the 70s and the, and the 80s and, and the other emperors and all of those things, the church in Ephesus was about to be absolutely bulldozed. They were going to have trouble unlike they had ever had trouble before. Churches do sometimes, and, and Ephesus was going to. And so... They needed to understand ahead of time, and God in his providence was carrying out his plan to let them know ahead of time. Did you notice how this chapter ends? All the Ephesians needed this. Did you notice the last two verses? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly above or beyond, depending on your version, all that we ask or think I don't know how good your imagination is, but I guarantee you something. The best imagination in this room cannot begin to fathom the infinite measure of God's love and mercy and ability to work. That's, well, that's what the Bible says. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Paul prayed for the church. He said, if you can just understand this, I want you to understand. You know what we need to do? We need to pray for one another that we will all come to understand what we got in Christ. Because like the characters of the Wizard of Oz, we have so much, and I think maybe most of us have never even scratched the surface of what we have in Christ but we need to because of the trials we face in this life to him be the glory because he can do above all that we ask or think according to his power that works within us. What a beautiful, powerful, incredible, awesome prayer in Philippians 3, 14 and following. The invitation this morning is simply this. Are you a part of that one church that was in the mind of God since before the foundation of the world? He asks that you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to accept that gift of grace so that you will have all those blessings in Ephesians 1, redemption, forgiveness, and all of those things. Repent of your sins and be baptized. And if you have done that, do you fully understand what you have? May you spend the rest of this earthly life discovering what you have in Christ every day blow your mind. It will blow your mind. Our God is an awesome God. If you need the prayers of the church to better understand, if you need the prayers of the church because you have struggled with something, we'd love to pray for you. If you need that, if you'd be baptized into Christ, become part of that church's family, we'd love to have you do that. We have an awesome God. If you want to get closer to him, come right now as we sing this song. <laughs>